Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of The Picklist. This is season six of the podcast and I'm really excited to bring you some great guests and interviews from all parts of the food and grocery industry over the coming weeks. As ever, if you enjoy The Picklist, please consider giving it a rating and leave a review. It makes a big difference to me and helps me reach more listeners. But let me tell you about this week's guest. Kicking off the new season is Chris White, Managing Director and Founding Partner at creative agency This Way Up. This Way Up works with lots of well-known food and drink brands, including Danone and Bell Group, and it's particularly known for its expertise around healthy and natural products and communicating health credentials through design. I caught up with Chris to talk about HFSS and how the recent government U-turn has affected his clients. We also talk about the fast-changing design language of the plant-based category and whether plant-based itself still remains a useful term and the importance and pitfalls of purpose for brands. Enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to The Pig List. Thank you for being my guest. Lovely to be here. Great to be here. Now, we're recording this on Monday, the 16th of May, 2022. What's on your plate this week? What's keeping you and the team at This Way Up busy at the moment? Okay, well, we we have a lot on our plate uh, at the minute. Um, I think we're just coming out the back, obviously, of quite a long and extended period in which a lot of our clients have been thinking about their strategy, um, how they reformulate their plans going forward, coming out of COVID. And obviously, they have been subject to a lot of different pressures over the last sort of, well, many months. Um, a lot of uh, cost uh, inflation on some of the raw materials they use. Some of their markets have changed. Obviously, the whole way people consume products um, at home has changed. So on our mind right now is how we assist those clients uh, helping to sort of unravel um, what happens next with with their plans for their brands, um, really, and how we help um, drive growth for them going forward in the next couple of years. And as you say, it's been such a busy period for food and grocery, and the news isn't stopping. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, inflation, as you alluded to, costs are soaring. We've just over the weekend had the announcement from the government that uh, parts of the HFSS restrictions that were supposed to come in in October and in January are now being delayed by a year. Uh, You're an agency that works with lots of food brands that are positioned around health in one form or another. How has HFSS and that whole debate affected the work you do with brands? And how do you feel about this delay and its likely impact on the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, a lot of our clients have been working towards developing their brands for this new legislation. There's no doubt about it. It's been really critical. And 
Um, there has obviously been the big debate about reformulating existing products or launching new ranges that are HFSS compliant. And that has taken up a lot of time. And the challenge there, obviously, for many of our clients has been production to deliver products that come in within those guidelines. Now, um, obviously, the shift in the legislation or the change is, again, um, obviously, a reaction, a government reaction to the economic um, conditions that we find ourselves in. But I think a lot of our food and drink uh, clients, and obviously, as you say, we work in the health, uh, healthy food and drink space, have found that there have been a lot of shifts that have meant they have had to be very reactive. And I think these sort of decisions that happen with only a few months notice shift priorities. They've been working extremely hard to get to this point. Uh, and now it feels like there will be some shifts in legislation. But this is just another, I suppose, challenge in this category, really, in food and drink that has come. And focus has been in this area. And now focus is going to have to go uh, into other parts of their business. And it's just that lack of being able to see slightly longer term, which I think is very distracting. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, the way you know consumers are consuming products has, has changed significantly with more consumption at home and people working flexibly. But how long will that last? And will people return to the office? How will those patterns of eating and drinking shift? And I think it's that uncertainty which is making life very difficult for any agency working with food and drink brands, there's a, a kind of we're in the middle of a, a shift in many ways, sort of societally and sort of the way we, we, we're we working and I guess living at, at home. But these changes combined with the economics and inflation are, are causing some real challenges. I can imagine. And do you find most of your clients take the view that some form of flexible working or hybrid working is here to stay and they're preparing for more at-home consumption longer term? Or do most of them see more of a shift back to the office? Because it's still a very live debate, including in government as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, th I think the expectation is there is going to be a, a real hybrid. I think the... the, the uh, future is a more flexible model with people working from home more, I think working remotely more, I think we're going to be seeing um, some changes therefore possibly to the way people use their homes and so forth in the space, but it is making changes in terms of the way people eat, obviously, and during COVID was one set of circumstances where, uh, you know, people did one or two things, they either took it as an opportunity to become healthier, um, and really embraced looking at the nutrition that they were taking on board and had in their homes for their families or themselves, um, or they did move into more snacking and consuming products that were perhaps um, a bit more indulgent. And But moving forward, that behavior is obviously shifting, and we will, again, I think a lot of manufacturers are trying to identify what happens now longer term. There have been shifts what is the next day? But there's no two ways about it. People will be, I think, significantly based at home, working from home. And that changes meals at home. It changes the kind of nutrition people want at home, the kind of products that they're consuming. So there's definitely shifts. That is long term. But um, again, it's it's not again, it's not there's there's no certainty here. We may find in 10 years time that actually we are all back in in offices full time. I think the jury is still kind of out, but certainly for the short to medium term, I think there's going to be a, a flexible approach. 
How have you approached this within your own agency? Because creative work in particular is often talked about as the kind of work that really benefits from having big brainstorming sessions with people physically in the same space. How have you navigated flexible working? Yeah, it's it. You're absolutely right. I mean, creativity thrives on people being together, bouncing ideas off each other, um, and exploring sort of new avenues. It's more difficult in an isolated environment. I mean, obviously, everybody has had to embrace the new sort of working tools of Teams and Zoom, and there are a series of platforms that you can use to sort of run workshops, and we've embraced those. Um, but essentially, it's been really more, I suppose, regular. Um, certainly whilst we've been working remotely, team get-togethers in, in groups, um, working with each other, literally sort of live streaming and bouncing ideas off each other, certainly within our creative team. Um, right now, with more flexible sort of working, we certainly tend to come together for, for, for briefings and for idea generation and for thinking about a particular challenge where we may well do presentations to clients and so forth remotely. But it is it is it has been a challenge. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges for for the creative team has obviously been inspiration as well. And you know, I mean there's no, you know, the internet is a brilliant source of inspiration, um, looking at launches and new products and so forth. But there's nothing quite like going around stores and exploring different venues and retail environments for inspiration. So that's been a bit challenging. Um, so and hospitality, of course, as well, which is such a huge source of inspiration for retail products as well, isn't it? It is. It, it, it absolutely it is. So I think those sort of environments have been harder obviously to access they're coming back and that's fantastic so look i think you know there's a real surge now i think of creativity going on um companies are looking to innovate more now coming out of covid um and i think that kind of real appetite to sort of move brands forward is there whereas it was much more difficult during the, the two years of, of covid i would say it's so interesting that you say that. I remember seeing, I think it must have been in the past week or so, an article in the FT talking about growing concern that actually innovation budgets might be cut back again, because as you say, there's so much uncertainty around cost of living, around some supply chain issues as well. But you're finding with within food and drink and certainly within the brands that you're working with, the appetite for NPD, for innovation is there and has come back. Yeah, it is. I think what we're seeing particularly is larger global brands or at least market leaders wanting to innovate around the kind of core propositions that they have. But stretching that quite far, I mean, interestingly, new products being developed um, that stretch some of those brands into new spaces. Completely new brand development is possibly less prevalent than it was three, four years ago. We're seeing a lot less of that. Um, but I think innovation is definitely coming back and it's coming back with those sort of brands that stand for something. They have a core proposition at their heart, whether it's some sort of product experience or some kind of usage that is particular to them. How can companies stretch that into some kind of new product ideas? That, that's what we're seeing a lot more of. And we've mentioned at various points that you and your agency have a real specialism around healthy food and drink brands, natural food and drink brands. Where did that specialism come from? How did you end up focusing on that in particular? So, yeah, so we've been operating for about 10 years as an agency. And prior to that, the founders had worked in the design uh, business, the innovation um, business, um, 
and sort of comms for, I guess, the best part of about 20 years. But when we set the agency up, we worked with a whole host of different, I suppose, companies and brands that, to some extent, we feel had used design to perhaps tell um, one side of a, a story about a brand, but perhaps not necessarily be particularly honest and transparent. And I think when we started this way up, we we really wanted to work for brands that had something truly um relevant and um something exciting about them that was that was essentially genuinely good in terms of a from a nutrition perspective and so we work with a lot of entrepreneurs um who had brilliant stories to tell and many of them were sort of quite pioneering in terms of the kind of products they were bringing to market from um all sorts of interesting products that some of them um also had a sustainable story so products that might be for example using um waste products from the human food chain that were repurposed um, in some way for, for to add value. And I think the team, when we started the business, we wanted to work for brands that had had a, had a, had a real sort of ambition to do good. And that stayed with the agency. And now we work for some really big companies, um, Bell and Danone and others, who really also have a real interest in helping to sort of change um, the way we look at food, both in terms of how we grow it and how we um, produce food through to sort of how we, you know, how we package it and so forth. And that has been quite an exciting journey for us because it's it's really been from, from tiny startup businesses through to much larger organizations. So we still work with a lot of startup businesses as well. I was really interested to see you quoted in a recent article about health and well-being at creative agencies. Um, really interesting piece about how agencies have adapted. One thing that really stood out to me was that you made a point that health and healthy mean very different things to different people. And this strikes me as one of the big challenges for health-focused food and drink brands, as in inevitably they are putting forward their version of health, their interpretation of what health means. And yes, that will resonate with some people, but it can also be off-putting or polarizing for some others. And plant-based in particular is one of those categories where claims around health can be uh, relatively controversial, particularly in light of debates about ultra-processing, long ingredient lists, and so on. How do you think food and drink brands should approach talking about health in a way that is inclusive and resonates with as wide a group of people as possible and doesn't end up being polarizing mm. yeah i think it's the, the 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 world of healthy food and drink has definitely shifted and i think consumers um perceptions of healthy food and drink you know, 15 20 years ago was that it was a kind of a rather drab world um where you went really to find products if there was some kind of real functional requirement. I mean, we work at a, a lot of, with a lot of tea brands, for example, and sort of herbal uh, teas and um, uh, those sort of in, infusion teas were often seen as, as sort of simply, a, you know, a sort of a, a series of products to buy for particular challenges, health challenges. But health and the health food category has definitely moved on in an enormous way. And brands now sort of represent... Um, something far more exciting in that space. I mean, obviously, taste has become much more interesting. And taste will always be paramount. It's critical. Um, and many of the brands we work with, you know, taste is still absolutely crucial. But there is a, also an element um, that is important now where consumers are looking at uh, how do I improve my long-term health through nutrition? There's so much more understanding that actually nutrition is the, the you know, it's the, it's the lock. It's the key 
really to 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 ensuring i think uh, longevity and and health and overcoming a lot of problems and i think there's a much, such a bigger understanding now that 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 is the case that brands have to look at this in ways whether they're existing brands or new brands and identify what they can do to improve their product to deliver something that is going to be beneficial to consumers. Um, and the point, I suppose, that I was making in that article really is that while health is to some extent about nutrition, it's not always necessarily about nutrition. Brands can make people feel um, a certain uh, level of joy, that they can make people's days a little bit brighter. There can be a kind of a mental lift that brands can bring. Um, and I think that's more important now than it ever has been, particularly with the last kind of two years we, we've been through. So, you know, certainly a lot of the brands we work with have a very kind of clear functional benefit. It's kind of maybe with live cultures or um, it may have be plant-based, as you say, or have very simple ingredient lists. But there are brands we work with that provide consumers with something else. It's a, it's a mental lift. It's, it's, it's some kind of moment of... Um, you know, uplift. And that can be powerful. Super interesting. And how do you then, when it is something that is not based on a functional benefit, but on this sort of mental uplift, are there any particular considerations around how to bring that to life through branding and packaging? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are. Um, I think within that space, um, that obviously, this idea of sort of joy and mental uplift, there are different visual cues and, and codes that need to be applied. I mean, often it can be to do with the naming of the products um, and really quite kind of conversational names that sort of give consumers a, a sort of a, I suppose, much more engagement with that brand. But it can obviously be to do with color, use of characters. Um, you want to try and create a smile you know, in consumers' minds, give them something that actually uh, gives them that little moment of, of sort of connection. Um, and that those visual cues that do that are slightly different from the ones that talk about the fact that there might be simple ingredient lists or they're all natural or, you know, they're biodynamic. Um, those cues can be quite different. And, you know, the consumers that are looking for those products can decode those those sort of visual cues. But yeah, there are codes that do play into that. And it's a kind of a playful, um, uh, yeah, more, more uplifting, more joyous, often more colourful space. Which categories are embracing this idea of mental uplift in particular? Are there any categories where you're seeing some really exciting work around this idea? Yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot of work in um, uh, the sort of uh, dairy space with a number of brands. Um, and in that space, we are certainly seeing quite a lot of this kind of creative um, uh, work. Some of the brands that we work on, for example, we've been working recently with some brands that are about um, a kind of a, a mental lift in the morning. First thing in the morning, that moment, you get up and you kind of think, oh, I've got my day. Um but products that provide um, a great source of, of protein um, and deliver that kind of initial hit of energy in the morning. And so we've done some work with those that, you know, we, we, we're seeing a lot more interesting sort of visual language being played out. And um, certainly, you know, we're seeing, seeing quite a lot of work in that. We're seeing quite a lot also within the sort of healthier confectionery. So we work with, we've been working with a company called um, Reviewer Foods for a brand called Free From Fellows, which is a lovely kind of sugar-free portfolio. 
And their brand actually has a sort of a lovely sense of joy about it. We through use of characters. Um, so there is a there is definitely a kind of I think within the health space, there is an increasing use of kind of much more playful language, um, even the tone of voice and how things are written on pack or used in comms is much more playful than it used to be. Now, you've mentioned you do quite a bit of work within the plant-based category as well. And this brings us nicely to the first article that you've picked, which is from New Food magazine. And the headline is, What are consumers looking for in plant-based products? And just for the benefit of listeners, this article reports on some consumer research commissioned by Kerry, which was carried out in a number of countries, including the UK, and looked at what makes people buy plant-based products. And the survey they ran found that health, yes, sustainability as well, are important considerations. But as you alluded to earlier, taste is still absolutely paramount. Taste is the number one driver of those product decisions. And it's a particularly important consideration for flexitarians. So people who might be dipping in and out of the plant-based category and are less ideologically committed to it than might be the case with vegans or vegetarians. And one of the things the, the study pulled out was that those flexitarians often have rather more negative perceptions of the taste of plant-based products and therefore need strong cues from branding and packaging to be reassured that, yes, these products are, in fact, going to be tasty. Chris, I was really interested to see you pick this article. Why did you choose it, and what stood out to you? Yeah, I think um, it is really interesting. The the plant-based category and plant-based world is obviously something which we're seeing, we're all seeing grow in pretty much every category. And what we have seen, I suppose, is the plethora of products enter pretty much every space, whether it's dairy um, or meat. Um, uh, we're seeing a vast number of products arrive. The, the challenge is that some do taste uh, good, but many of them aren't performing perhaps as well as the products that already exist in that category. And taste is absolutely crucial. Now, we're seeing more products actually comparable to those that uh, have traditionally been in those spaces and some great tasting products. But one of the challenges with flexitarians is their first, I suppose, experience of a plant-based product. If it's not necessarily delivering as well as what they used to, they can be turned off from the category. So it's trying to encourage people back into it um, to have another go and to try another product within this space. And I think for designers, that's obviously about trying to reassure consumers that these products perform as well. So for example, you know, cheese is a particularly difficult one. Um, uh, people have had many experiences with plant-based cheese that uh, perhaps a few years ago where products weren't necessarily uh, all that good. But there are some fantastic products out there, but it's demonstrating that these products actually perform as well. They, they're great as well. They melt as well. They have the kind of cooking capabilities of um, regular dairy-based cheeses. And that is a definitely a role that design can play. It is demonstrating that there is this, this parity um, that's available for consumers to tap into. We also see that in, in, in meat. So the presentation of the product is absolutely crucial in terms of how you're using it and some of the examples of what you're using it in. So, you know, the, the grill lines or the cook lines on a piece of meat, how it's actually, quite frankly, been you know, beautifully cooked is crucial to the consumer when they're in that shopping occasion, and perhaps suggesting some alternatives, but being creative with some of these plant-based products. So 
it's a, a space where we do a lot of work, but a lot of it really is about getting consumers over those hurdles of, of taste. That, that really is quite key. Particularly in the UK, we work in all sorts of markets within plant-based, but in different markets. And one of the reasons I, I, I thought the article was quite interesting is that in the US, um, there is much more of a driver around the plant-based products being better for the planet. And I think, again, it's about understanding the consumers, understanding the market. What are the drivers that are going to help encourage purchase? Because some markets, it is actually very much more about a, a better future, a better use um, obviously, of land and so forth, not doing, um, not, 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 not following sort of animal farming. So, so it's, it again, it's, it's understanding that audience, understand the geography you're working in, but really, crucially, using design to, I think, demonstrate that these better products now do have a, a parity to what consumers have been in, in, been using up to date, and they will always have one or two bad experiences. But it's trying to encourage them back in to the plant based space to, you know, explore another. Um, another offering. It's uh, so so. You know, we're still, I think, at an early stage with plant-based. There's a lot of products out there that um, can, could be improved. That's that's for sure. But every year, you know, the, I think the delivery is definitely getting better and better in many categories. And as you say, the category has changed enormously, even just in the past five years, in terms of you know the the product quality, the range of, uh, of products and brands out there. And as you've talked about, the design language of that category has evolved very quickly as well. Today's plant-based products, particularly some of the challenger brands, look and feel quite different to your traditional vegan or vegetarian uh, brand from a few years ago. You've already talked about the importance of using design cues to communicate taste and flavor and encouraging people to to give that category another try if perhaps the initial experience was was less than ideal. Are there any other big opportunities that you see for plant-based brands around further improving packaging, branding, and design? Is there anything you see on shelf that you think, oh, I think that's either not quite working for the category or it's perhaps stopped working for the category based on where we are now? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, I think plant-based has evolved um, significantly. I mean, the, the the category in terms of the, the the use of language has moved on. So we're seeing consumers more interested in actually how, certainly within plant-based, what is the story behind that plant-based product? I mean, you know, how has it been made? So the process is now important, um, much like a lot of foods honesty you know, that transparency about actually what's in this product and how they've been put together how they've been sort of processed and how they've been um, combined to, to deliver something delicious is really important so we're seeing a slightly more sort of artisanal language emerging around plant-based not just i'm a plant-based version of this thing over here well actually there's it's gone through something else and the ingredients have come from these spaces and so it, it's an interesting proposition so we're seeing more of that. We're also seeing, interestingly, I think, a bit more sort of indulgent plant-based products emerge, and that's particularly in the dairy category. The cues there often link back to nature in some way, but they're a little bit perhaps less overt. Um, natural forms, natural patterns are used to try and connect back to nature. Um, but a lot of products, particularly in the dairy space, can actually have and do deliver brilliant taste and sort of sensory and textual experiences. So there's a different language required there. And I think, you're, again, you're trying to overcome some big preconceptions from a lot of flexitarians and non-plant-based eaters that actually how can something deliver an amazing sort of delicious dairy-based sort of yogurt um, and have the same kind of experiences as a, as a, as a dairy yogurt. So the, the language and the cue 
cues and codes there are quite different. But the main thing often is it's about delivering a kind of a sense of accessibility for these brands. Less talking about plant-based, more talking about everyday, accessible, using the kind of cues and codes and colours that allow a brand to look like it should be in your fridge all the time, that it's kind of part of the regular grocery um, uh, sort of a basket that, that, that these consumers might buy. So that that language has moved on, I think, from necessarily shouting necessarily that I'm I'm plant based, making it you know clear. But I think the language is definitely less, I suppose, overtly vocal. Um, and now talking about quality and a bit more provenance, a bit more kind of artisanal um, discussion around where the ingredients are from, and being essentially more um, accessible. How do you feel about the term plant-based? When we first shifted from vegan to plant-based, that was a big step for the for the category and in making it more accessible to mainstream consumers. More recently, I think there's a little bit of unease within some parts of the plant-based market around whether that term still works, whether it's become too divorced from actual plants uh, based on, on some of the products we're seeing. Is that a term that still works? For consumers or is it time to look at some something else to replace it i think it is in many ways it you know it is the the standard at the at the minute um there are brands that are using you know other language um and you know that is that is interesting um some you know very much sort of claiming to be you know part of of the category they're in and not really communicating too much about their plant-based ingredients but i think plant-based you're right has become quite extended with ingredients that feel less and less perhaps what in consumers mind um actually qualifies as as a as a true sort of plant base um, but at the moment, that is, I think, still the standby term that allows consumers to kind of understand that it doesn't contain dairy or um, animal protein. Um, we're still at that phase, I think, this market, although it's been now, you know, obviously in play and, and, and gathering a lot of momentum in the last sort of 10 years. I think we're still trying to find the terminology for it. Um, and plant based at the moment, I think, is the is, is the one that really clearly communicates what the products are about. Quite a few plant-based brands, but also brands in other categories, are now making overt sustainability claims, and particularly they're putting claims about their carbon footprint um, on their packs. Some on the front of pack, some on the back of pack or to the side. Some are quoting exact figures for emissions. Other are others are using terms like carbon neutral or lower carbon. What does good design practice look like when it comes to these sustainability and carbon claims is there are there sort of do's and don'ts around how brands can communicate those credentials effectively without overwhelming the consumer with all sorts of figures and cluttering up their packs potentially yeah i mean i think there is you're absolutely right a kind of um connection clearly between plant-based and sustainable kind of communication that's part of the the merit of, of obviously of plant-based um but i think the key thing is to, to to be um very transparent about what those benefits are and if there are brands that have multiple locations obviously in which they're made some global brands do then those claims need to be relevant to the market in which they're actually operating but the other component i think is also to 
to to not overload the consumer. So you know, with with too many kind of claims and sustainability messages, if there is one thing the brand is doing really well, then focus on that. And I think consumers do tend to switch off when they become bombarded by information. Um, I think if a brand has a kind of a really interesting use of a few simple ingredients, then, you know, fantastic, let's kind of get that message. But if there's a great sort of, you know, resource use and there's limited sort of, for example, water being used, then focus on that. I think when it becomes a kind of a shopping list uh, of items, then the consumers kind of tend to turn off. And I think that's perhaps a, a bit less of um uh believability it feels like we're just throwing everything uh, in case sort of something sticks with consumers so now in design you know the, the kind of the rules of great design apply in plant bases that are within any category which is kind of be focused um you know aim for you know no more than sort of three messages really on the pack um you know be as clear and concise as you can be transparent and not overload consumers and are carbon related claims um, top of mind enough with UK consumers that it's worth putting them on the front of pack? Or do you see that primarily as something that goes on the back of pack? I think that's mostly a back of pack message. I think consumers find it difficult to, in many ways, sometimes quantify the kind of claims, understand the kind of impact those claims have or what they might they truly mean so a certain level of carbon footprint um or carbon saving it's difficult sometimes to kind of actually contextualize that well what does that mean um so that certainly needs to be part of the message i think that can be on the back of pack but i i think for, for a lot of these brands actually um it is about kind of giving a bigger message people understand what plant-based products can do in terms of land resource um and I think communicating some of those bigger themes is definitely still um, a road to, to, to kind of creating a lot more engagement. I think it's, it's you know, if, they, if it can be put into the context of something that's easy to understand, then um, I think, you know, then, then, then all very well and good. But I think otherwise it's, it becomes a little bit sort of vague um, and consumers start to struggle. I'm going to take you on to your next article, but we're sort of staying in a relatively similar CSR-related uh, matters. And in fact, we're going to combine it with the article I picked as well, because both of them align quite nicely. But let's start with your article. You picked a piece from The Drum, and the headline is, Why is it important to have a defined purpose? Uh, this article says people want to know who they're buying from, what companies stand for, and that crucially, having a purpose isn't just about feel-good factor, but it also makes good commercial sense, uh, partly because having a purpose can help with brand awareness and recall. And then the article also provides some tips around how to go about defining your purpose. Much of it boils down to just asking the question, why a lot? Why are we doing this? And why should people choose us over other brands? And when I saw that you'd picked that piece, it immediately made me think of a, another article I had seen in The Economist, which I've picked uh, to go alongside our discussion, uh, which is, again, on a similar topic, but it takes a rather different angle. The headline of The Economist article is The Wooliest Words in Business, and it basically takes brands to task for using words like purpose, but also sustainability and innovation in such a vague way that they lose all meaning. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to consider these two articles on the benefits, but also on the pitfalls uh, of purpose together. Let's start with yours. 
Why did you pick this article? Why did it stand out to you? Yeah, I, I, look, we work with a lot of per brands with purpose in the health and wellness space. Brands that their purpose may well be and often are about actually helping people, helping their lives uh, in some way. Um, or they can be broader than that. Some of the companies that we work with are very purpose-led in terms of, for example, changing kind of biodiversity. You know, we, we obviously we farm far too few crops on the planet. And some of the larger businesses we work with, like Danone, you know, are making a real sort of mission to try and increase that biodiversity. Um, whereas others have a much sort of smaller um, purpose, which might be about kind of personal health. Now, that's fantastic. And we work with a lot of companies that do do that. We work with a fantastic company that um, has been developing uh, aqua farming. And the product that they're producing is a, a water grown vegetable. But their business allows them, obviously, to develop that in city centers, uh, reduce um, food miles and do it on a really very, very fast scale. It's all automated as well so it's completely free of pathogens and it's fantastic and their purpose is to get you know obviously uh, a nutritional based purpose it's really about helping people and longevity of, of, of life and health and that's very different but it's very much about personal health but a lot of brands we work with do have a real real purpose that business was, was set up by someone who wasn't in the food business but came to it with a medical background but there are a lot of brands out there that claim to have a purpose that kind of isn't really a purpose and I think that's the part where we um, as a business work with our clients to say well you know actually that 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 isn't really a purpose the why um, isn't something necessarily people are going to get out of bed every morning and, and jump up and down about that particular why um, and I I do feel that purpose is a really crucial thing for brands not all brands necessarily have a purpose and some may not necessarily need a purpose but I think it is a powerful powerful thing for brands to have particularly as consumers truly can show and vote and make difference to the world we're in with how they buy products more now than ever before um, how we vote with our pounds how we vote with where we spend our money is going to change the way the world looks in 10 15 20 years um, so brands that really state their purpose very clearly, um, I think now have a real opportunity to make that change, but also to become more successful and, and grow. But I do agree with you that with an, un, un, an unclear, undefined purpose, and there are quite a few brands out there, and often a purpose that just feels perhaps um, that it's that it's actually very um intangible um perhaps or has minimal impact isn't really a purpose at all so i think look, I'm, I'm a big believer in it and i think brands have a huge opportunity to make change and i think that's why we run our agency the way we do with the companies that we do work with um so i'm i guess frustrated and your article you know illustrates it with the with the kind of the muddying of the waters what is and purpose has become another word that sort of feels like a marketing word that is often taken out into the sort of wider world and, and used completely inappropriately. When you come across brands, but possibly potential clients, um, and they're perhaps not quite at that stage yet where they have a clear purpose, what do you do to help them uncover the true purpose or just, you know, be a little less woolly around what they're actually trying to do? Yeah. Um, 
what we we spend a lot of time with the companies we work with particularly the entrepreneurs understanding why they started the business so you know what was the reason what's their background what change were they trying to make and that's really where we start to uncover the purpose in 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 the brands that we work with sometimes entrepreneurs kind of might, might find that quite difficult to articulate and it's through a sort of a process of talking um through their business and how they want to grow it and uh, and the kind of products that they want to develop down the line we start to uncover actually you know this is your purpose this is why you're you're, you're doing this but it really purpose-led businesses um with entrepreneurs often there is some kind of driving force that these these guys have got into this business and they want to make change with larger companies um often it, it is about trying to understand what difference their brands make in in the world what why are they actually making uh, an impact and and on whom that bit can be a bit more involved and really that's again looking at production looking at the people looking at you know what impact these brands are having in people's lives um, and sometimes it's trying to find a space that that a brand can earn. I mean, obviously, Dove, you know, is, is I suppose the 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 example that most you know companies uh, will cite, and they have created something really powerful around how um, uh, women you know view um, their bodies and body shape. And I think it's fantastic what Dove have managed to achieve. Um, but other brands, other large brands have got the opportunity to do something similar to that. It's kind of understanding what role those brands play in consumers' lives and then trying to identify a space they can own and communicate a message clearly and consistently. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a real, real need for purpose, if I'm quite honest. Um, and it's, it's and when it's described as fluff, I think we're missing the point. Brands can create change. They should create change. They are in many ways fundamental to driving change. Um, and that is why we will continue to try and find purpose for brands or work with brands with purpose. We started the conversation today by uh, alluding to some of the challenges around inflation, cost of production, the cost of living crisis. How do you think purpose-led brands are going to fare in a climate where consumers have become very price conscious and many are trading down to a label in order to manage their expenses? Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's a real challenge now as we see the cost of, of living rise and prices increasing. And obviously, it's not just consumer goods. We're seeing all sorts of pressures on, on consumers. But I think brands with purpose will continue um, to be able to command some kind of added value margin premium on brands that, that don't. Um, and, you know, obviously... COVID, to some extent, was a pause moment for the planet and the con consumers on it to, to look at the effects of uh, mass production uh, on our planet. Um, and I think recognise that actually we, we can affect change in the way that we consume things, not necessarily just food. So I think it has actually also provided a platform for brands with purpose going forward that actually, you know, they have an opportunity to make a uh, real impact now. So whether... Um, the changes that are happening now in terms of price um, pressures will, will will have a massive impact. I think it's about communicating to consumers why there is a, a value in paying more for brands that actually are effecting some change. Um, 
it's it's it, I, I think you know it's through all of these periods when there is pr- increasing price pressure brands need to continue in in invest in what they stand for they communicate their core values and create that kind of point of differentiation and purpose does allow brands to do that if listeners want to learn more about you and your work or just want to connect with you what's the best way to do that well, they can uh, they can certainly look at our website, which is um, www.thiswayupdesign.com, or they can connect with us at hello at thiswayupdesign.com. Um, and obviously, we 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 have quite a um, a good presence through social media channels as well. So um, certainly can, can connect with us through those platforms. Fantastic, Chris! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Lovely to be with you. Thank you very much for having me, Julia. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.